Welcome to Connecting with Coincidence with psychiatrist Bernard David Beitman, MD. Dr. Beitman is the founder of the Coincidence Project. The project encourages people like you to tell each other coincidence stories. To learn more about Dr. Beitman's work, put Connecting with Coincidence in your web browser. You'll find his book, his Psychology Today blog, and the interviews from this podcast. And now your host, Bernard Beitman, MD. Welcome to Connecting with Coincidence. I am your host, Dr. Bernie Beitman, MD, and this is Connecting with Coincidence. I am a psychiatrist. I study the mind and the brain in its physical and cultural contexts. Uh, meaningful coincidences like synchronicity and serendipity provide clues to how our minds and our brains are connected, not only to our bodies, but to other people, to nature and our environment. We're all part of the same thing and coincidences indicate that. They, are, they illuminate the hidden currents that connect and unite us. They happen in all, aspect, all aspects of life. But as we're trying to do on this show and other ways, uh, is to like alert you to them so that you'll pay attention to them and then you'll see them because the primary cause of coincidences is somebody noticing them. You can pre-order my book, Meaningful Coincidences. Uh, the cover is over my shoulder. It's due out in September. Uh, the, the full title is Meaningful Coincidences and How and Why Synchronicity and Serendipity Happen. And it'll come out in September and the order links will be in the text below. And while you're looking around in the text below, please look up and subscribe to our show because it really helps us get our message out. My story for today is entitled Precognition Through Action. On a Thursday before we play Johns Hopkins, in football, I went to Swarthmore College, it was my senior year. Uh, I was on the practice field and for somehow, for some reason I got on automatic pilot and without any intention, I moved, without conscious attention, I moved over to a little practice football field uh, that was adjacent to the big one and put down two practice dummies. They're things about shaped like this that are about come up to my waist, put them down next to each other, grab the football, uh, and then walked about uh, 10 yards away from them and turned around and went like this over the football and then turned back around and just sprinted through these two practice dummies like that. Then I did it a second time and then walked back to the practice field. I didn't think much about it. I just was like on a puppet on a string doing it. I just did it. So on Saturday, two days later, uh, I, I returned punts and I was getting frustrated because the Johns Hopkins punter kick, kick, kept kicking the ball short so I couldn't return any punts. Uh, then finally, it was a high arcing punt and I hear the guy in the loudspeaker saying, and Schmendrick made a great kick and it was really over my head. So I had to turn around and catch it over my head like that. And then I turned around and yeah, there were two Johns Hopkins guys coming right at me just as I had practiced on the practice field with those two dummies. So I knew what to do. <laughs> I ran right between them. One thought the other one was going to get me. They didn't know what to do with it. And so I went 90 yards for a touchdown. This incident uh, encouraged me to believe that uh, we have the capacity to see the future. And that's what we will be talking about with our guest today, Eric Wargo. Eric Wargo has a PhD in anthropology from Emory University and works as a science writer and editor in Washington, DC. He's the author of two books about precognition called Time Loops, the first one, Precognition, Retrocausation, and The Unconscious came out in 2018. And the most recent one, which is 
dream work, precognitive dream work and the long self came out last year. We've got the same publisher and we're both very happy with it. He also writes about science fiction, consciousness and parapsychology at his popular blog, The Nightshirt. He is currently researching a book about the role of precognition in creativity. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, Bernie. This is going to be fun. It's going to be fun. So, you know, I, I, I wasn't, a, and I haven't had a lot of precognition things. I don't have the dreams that you describe so nicely and so often, the dreams that you've had that are precognitive. But here was a precognitive something or other, but that I acted it out. It wasn't in a dream. It wasn't a thought. I wasn't thinking. I just went over there. So please connect that football story with uh, your ideas about precognition. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, what you're describing is exactly how precognition operates in everyday life. And, and, and uh, you know, you, you said a couple of things. You said automatic pilot and you said without conscious intention. And the basic, the basic fact about precognition is that it's unconscious. It's, it's part of what Freud called the unconscious. And dreams are one manifestation of that. It's there, that one way in which we, you know, many people can get in touch with the unconscious every night if they remember their dreams and, and, and so on. But it's, uh, there are all kinds of other ways that, that it enters into our experience and plays into our behavior. And what you're describing is, an ex is a beautiful example of a behavioral response. It's a behavioral response to a situation that was coming down the pike in your life. And because you're clearly an intuitive person who sort of gives into those urges without questioning them, and without thinking about them too much, I mean, this is, I think, how a lot of people sort of inhibit themselves. Um, you went ahead and just did this thing that made no sense and didn't think twice about it. And then sure enough, it turned out to be decisive. It, it, it enabled you to, to act out and practice something you were about to do uh, in an athletic setting. Um, the, you know, I, I've, 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 when I wrote my first book on precognition, I was sort of, you know, talking about it in general terms and how it might work and it, what its effects may be. And I got so many emails from people about their dreams that I realized, okay, we need to have a book here specifically about, you know, working with precognitive dreams. But, uh, but honestly, the kinds of things you're describing, and I do talk about it a little bit in the new book as well, these kinds of behavioral uh, responses to, to future situations. Um, this is so, so common. And, uh, and it, I think it's how it's affecting us, you know, really, you know, constantly. Uh, and, but you need, you know, you need to have a certain intuitive mindset and you need to have a, a kind of self awareness <laughs> to, to detect how it's working. But I think that's a beautiful example. Well, it was, it's strange. I, I don't really have any other examples I can remember about, but it stands out because it wasn't just uh, acting it. It really got, let me go 90 yards for a touchdown. I mean, mm -hmm. that's, that's a big deal. I made three touchdowns that day and it was like uh, pretty, pretty amazing to be able to have practiced something for that game, but I'd never practiced it before, which is what we implied here. I'd never done that before. Right. I played rugby at Yale and I had the same thing happen once. And I was like almost bored. I saw these two guys standing there, it went right through it. So I had practiced it once before. So there's something about acting it out that, you know, that's a psychoanalytic yeah. term, you know, where you act out your subconscious or your unconscious. So I was acting out my subconscious, which now you're telling us, and I think it's important for everybody to know that we may do this more often than we know, because it's easier to think of it in a dream and get really hit with the dream and then see it happen. Sometimes it's imagining something and then seeing it happen. And that's what we'll get to. But to behaviorally do it, I, mm -hmm. I'm glad we can alert people to, to our behaviors, sometimes act out uh, what is about to happen. So that, that's a great, that's a great addition mm -hmm. to the, this discussion. Our bodies know things, you know, I mean, the, the, the term, 
you know, when people hear the word precognition, they, they think, well, it means knowing the future, you know, explicitly knowing the future yeah, yeah. or seeing the future. But, you know, yeah, that's like, that's a, a sliver, <laughs> I think. Uh, I think, you know, mostly it's these kinds of bodily, bodily knowing. Um, yeah. The bodily knowing. I, I, I'm not a big, uh, like, remembering the dreams kind of thing guy. I mean, I have dreams, I remember them, but I'm much more a movement-oriented person. Yeah. I mean, football, baseball, a lot of different, I love to dance, mm -hmm. there's all kinds of other things. So I translate things into like on the football field, like, uh, and in life and in dancing, mm -hmm. kind of feel my way around and my body reacts to it. So we are different in the way our subconscious, unconscious expresses itself. And I think that's right. an important idea that you are bringing to us here. So let me ask you two other ones of, that are mine that, that are real, that are kind of um, have have bothered me uh, a little bit to try to explain them. Uh, uh, the simple version of it, when I was eight or nine and got started in this, uh, I, I came home and my dog Snapper wasn't there. And I asked my mother, where is he? And she said, I don't know, go to the police station. And I rode my bike over there and I didn't write. I walked. I asked the, po the policeman and the big desk where my, did you know where my dog was? And he didn't. So I started crying and I, and rather than go home uh, the way I'd come, I was crying so much. I went, I got, I got lost and went a different way. And there was snapper. Now, I, I, how was, please relate that to cognition, precognition. It's, it's the same thing. I mean, it's the, it's, it's uh, our, you know, these re these rewards they're typically rewards in our future you know like your touchdown or or finding your dog uh they reflux back in time and they and they don't they don't give us a clear picture of what's going to happen and then there's there's important reasons they don't and this is something i go into in the new book and it gets kind of a little esoteric about how information can flow into the past in a universe uh in which people have free will and can change outcomes and so on so you know uh but uh, that's, so, that's so important and we encourage people to read his book uh so because retro causation makes people a little nuts to have mm -hmm. to kind of think uh, how, how future causes the present or even the past so so but let's but with free will messes it up a little yeah bit, so. exactly exactly because we're liable you know even if we're, even when we're talking about rewards that you you know that in our future we are we are um we have this this urge and it's often a self-destructive urge to go against to 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 go against what what we know about ourselves and what other people know about us. So even if there's a, re even if you precognized a reward, clearly you might do something different, you know, uh, instead of that's and, and that, uh, and especially if what we precognize is something that's maybe something we don't want, or it's, 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 it's a mix, um, you know, we're going to act in another way. So that's why precognition doesn't give us clear, you know, video quality uh, images of some future outcome that we could, you know, intercede to prevent or act in a different way or, or mess up yeah or, or mess, mess up, up. Mess yeah up. Uh, one of the uh the uh, when this was actually this this issue of of you know of whether you can create a different outcome whatever it was studied in the context of, of wormholes actually back in the 1980s hmm. um and uh kip thorne who some of your listeners probably uh, have heard of. He's the big sort of black hole, wormhole expert. Um, and some of his students uh, sort of worked out the math of, you know, well, what, what happens when an object, you know, like a goes back in time and, and tries to interfere with itself and so on, sort of grandfather paradox kind of stuff. And um, when doing the math, it turns out that's impossible. Like, like things can travel back in time, but what they, that will always result in the object going back in time I and mean, there's always you know a a loop a causal loop uh this is why i call time loops um and uh the the metaphor that is often used i forget if they use this metaphor i think they did was uh shooting a shooting a uh, a billiard ball like you know sh shooting a billiard ball back in time at its former self okay with the idea of deflecting it away onto a different historical path but what they find what the math proves is if you you know shoot a billiard ball at its early it's at its younger self it always deflects its younger self 
into the wormhole in the future. Okay. So it always leads to that future outcome. And so and that's what that's what I think happened in, in your case, in all these cases, is that is that this your uh you know your ultimate reward of finding your lost dog was like shooting a wormhole at your younger, or I'm sorry, shooting a billiard ball at your younger self through a wormhole, deflecting you onto this strange course of action, which was taking another path home from the police station, <laughs> which, you know, led and, and the way it worked and the way that you received that billiard ball, that strike of your future self was crying and, 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 and the motivations that led you to, <laughs> to, um, to take that alternative path. Uh, I've got, there's a, there's a great example in my book, and this is actually from a precognition researcher named Julia Mossbridge. And I don't know if you know her, but. Oh yeah. Um, I've, I've interviewed her a couple times. Right. Yeah. So in her book, she tells this great story of, of her, um, her, uh, so she was, I think working in the kitchen or something and her 13 year old son comes home from school and, um, and she was convinced that he'd left the garage door open. And she said, go close the garage door. And, she, and he said, I closed the garage door. And she, and she got really mad at him because she was sure that, no, he'd left the garage door open. And, and he said, no, mom, I didn't leave the garage door open. And she, you know, finally she stomped off to the garage and found, oh, indeed, he was right. He had closed the garage door. But on the way back from the garage, she saw that there was an electrical fire in a, in a, um, I forget, like a thermostat or something on the wall. And right on the other side of that wall, um, her partner had an oxygen tank. So there was a, there was a real danger of explosion that would have, you know, destroyed the house. Had she not had this funny feeling that, that, that the garage door was open, that her son had left the garage door open and gone to check. So, so, you know, the information in her head, that's not, you know, people think, well, that's not pre cognition right i mean she's not getting a, a clear image of a future outcome uh but what she got was this 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 erroneous imagination that led her to do something that had this you know really important rewarding outcome which was preventing uh preventing uh, what could have been a, a fatal fire in her house um so you know that's the way it works that's that's reminds me a lot of your story yeah it reminded me too because she told me the same story and and uh i i first ran across this with uh, rex stanford and psi mediated instrumental responses which is the same general idea that psi abilities like precognition helps you get rewards in a subconscious way you just know to go this way and that way i i've tended to call Julia's example and my example with my dog as a human GPS, which is uh, not as getting someplace you need to be without knowing how you got there. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's some of the same ideas uh, with different right. labels. And you're clarifying yeah. some of what I was thinking about. Now, let me give you a different example of that I want to see if how, how this might be precognitive. Uh, the other event that uh, really tuned me into looking at uh, meaningful coincidences um, took place in uh, 1973. Uh, I was in San Francisco uh, on February 26th uh, over a sink in this Victorian house I was living with, uncontrollably choking. I couldn't get something out of my throat. Uh, I don't, I didn't eat anything. I don't know what it was, but I couldn't get it out of my throat. I kept choking. <coughs> the next day, uh, which was my birthday, February 27th, uh, my brother um, calls me and tells me that uh, our father had died. Uh, and he died uh, at 2 a.m. on February 27th in Wilmington, Delaware. I was in San Francisco and I was choking at around 11 p.m. So we were we were both choking around the same time. So that struck me as uh, something to pay attention to. My dog, I love my dog, I love my father. And here uh, these two examples, but choking simultaneously. Right. How is that related to precognition? Yeah, that's a that's a, a great question. I mean, the obvious and the obvious answer from my point of view, and I'm not saying this is the answer, but but what I would propose is, you know, again, the the body is is 
communicating these things. The body is, is yeah. doing these things. And this goes back to Freud, who I imagine we'll talk about later in the interview. I mean, this, you know, Freud, you know, mapped out, well, it wasn't actually just Freud. I mean, he was actually responding to psychiatrists of his era who were, who were looking at how the body somatizes uh, psychic, psychological situations. And I, and this is a big argument in my first book, Time Loops, is that, is that what we call symptoms, you know, psycho, you know, what psychoanalysts would call symptoms, uh, neurotic symptoms or, or acting out or whatever um, are precognitive. And it's not a, a very distant leap from that claim to saying that, that something like choking on your food could be a kind of precognitive symptom of, or a premonitory symptom of, uh, of, of your, your dad's, uh, passing. Um, uh, so, you know, that's, so that's what I would offer. I'm not saying that's what did happen, but that's certainly how I would, uh, the hypothesis that I would. Well, that's, that's the least clear to me of all the things you've, you've said. (laughs) So, uh, let's, and let's leave that away because I think that is different. Um, from the other things, uh, mm-hmm. but let's, I, 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 I kind of heard what you had to say. Uh, we want to maybe talk maybe a little bit more about Freud, but the story in your book about Jung and his scarab and his patient needs to get out there more. It, it's yep. so important because that is the, that scarab story is the most repeated um, coincidence synchronicity story uh, around these days so tell us your view of what of, of tell us briefly what the story is uh, many people may not know exactly what it is but and then tell us what you've been able to add to it please sure yeah so yeah this i i totally agree with you i mean this is the this is the the number one of specimen case of synchronicity. And and it's a story that comes from Jung's book, Synchronicity. It also appears a slightly more elaborated fashion in another, in an essay he wrote uh, around the same time on the same subject. Um, But yeah, it's a story that everyone knows. I I imagine it's probably the most famous thing he ever wrote, really. I mean, this, this, this one paragraph in, in the book, Synchronicity and a causal connecting principle. Um, So, okay. As the story, here's as what he puts in the story. Now, Jung was not big on, you know, putting a bunch of case study details. I mean, he likes to, to, to leave things short and, and not give, <laughs> not give a lot of uh, the kind of Freudian messy stuff that, that, that other psychoanalysts were into, but he, uh, so he, you know, he, he described this woman said that he was just, she was very rational, highly rational, not very open to things. The, the therapy had reached an impasse um, and it was kind of boring. It wasn't, you know, going anywhere. Uh, and you know, she need, you know, he need, needed something to open her up, you know, to, to the mysterious and the ineffable or whatever, or irrational. Okay. Well, so she comes into his consulting room and tells him a story, a dream that she'd had the night before of someone giving her a very valuable golden piece of jewelry in the shape of a of an Egyptian scarab beetle. Okay. And then right as he's telling, right as she's telling him this story, he hears a tapping on a, on the window behind him and turns around and there's this uh, European relative of the dung beetle called a rose chafer or Rosenkoffer in German. Um, and it's sort of on the window and he, he opens it up and, and cups the insect in his hand and hands it to his patient and says, here's your scarab. And this coincidence, he says, um, you know, it, it punctured a hole, as he puts it, in her sort of icy rationalism and, and enabled the therapy to go forward. And of course he placed a lot of emphasis on the archetypal meaning of the scarab beetle in Egyptian religion as a sort of a symbol of rebirth. And he saw, saw this, this moment in, in this woman's therapy as, as a rebirth moment. Um, and people, and that's the way people retell the story, you know, and from Jung's point of view, note, he's telling it from Jung's point of view, not his patient's point of view. And this is important because from Jung's point of view, 
it is like a synchronicity in the sense that it's a coincidence happening in time at one, you know, he's hearing this story about being handed a, a, a scarab beetle and lo and behold, there's a scarab beetle behind him and he hands, he sort of acts out that, that, that scenario. Um, so what I've done in both of my books, I, I devote a lot of real estate to the story in both of them because it's so, there's so many layers to it. Um, is is talk about what really happened and who this woman was. We now know her identity. We know a lot about her now. Thanks. This is thanks to a um, a Jungian analyst and a curator, I believe, an image curator at the Jung Museum in Zurich, uh, named uh, Vincente de Mora, and he wrote a really interesting article in 2013 uh, about this patient, uh, and her name was Henriette Madeleine. Uh, Quarles Van Ufford, but she went by Maggie, Maggie Quarles. Okay. And she was an aristocratic woman from Holland. Uh, she'd been born in Indonesia, what we now call Indonesia. And, um, and uh, her family moved back to Holland when she was very young. Um, and she uh, had, you know, there's, I don't want to go too deep into her story, but she had moved to uh, to Zurich, uh, actually with her two sisters, uh, one of which uh, needed Jung's care. And, uh, and that's why they all moved to Zurich. They were really trying to escape the aristocratic, their aristocratic home, which was very stifling. Um, uh, but anyway, she wound up in, in, in therapy with Jung. And, uh, and this, this event happened probably early in her therapy. So probably around 1920. And, uh, but she was a precog, what I call a precog. That is to say, someone who routinely has precognitive dreams and precognitive experiences. And that's, and it's actually quite common. And honestly, we're all precogs, but it just manifests differently. You know, for you, it's, you know, uh, athletic things, but for other people, it's dreams. And she had these dreams. And anyway, so she has uh, a dream about someone, and it doesn't say who, handing her scarab beetle and lo and behold the next day in her doctor's office that's what happens okay uh and we in the business of precognitive dream work call this a dunn dream after the pioneer uh jw dunn who who wrote an important book about precognitive dreaming uh back in the 1920s uh but anyway it's this is this is how precognitive dreams work um and so she was having a precognitive dream and this this event was really hers it was her dream which came true in her office the next day um and it provoked jung of course to give her this you know great explanation of the role of the scarab in egyptian religion and so on uh which he claims uh she didn't already know and i, I think this is a i think he's confabulating there because everybody knew the, <laughs> the meaning of the scarab at that point in history i mean scarabs were huge um but anyway he claims he, she didn't know and in any event it was a very validating moment in her therapy uh and it did indeed act as a one of these you know synchronicities that jolts us out of our complacent you know rationalistic worldview um and it enabled the the therapy you know, to, to move forward, um, as, as he said, but this was a precognitive dream. It wasn't, you know, uh, Freud, uh, Jung kind of makes out, he's, 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 he contradicts himself a lot in, in his texts on synchronicity. On the one hand, he'll say, well, this can't explain anything. It's just a term. But on the other hand, he'll say that this is a principle in the universe and so on. Um, so, you know, uh, there's, there's contradiction there, but I think that, that what's really happening uh, is a precognitive experience. And I, and I said that, that Maggie was a precog because it turned one of the things that Vicente de Mora revealed in this really interesting article is that she had other precognitive dreams in, in her therapy, uh, with, with Jung on one, on one occasion, she, uh, she had this dream about a certain situation and I'm forgetting the situation, but then she told it to him in her therapy the next day. And Jung had just read this situation in a, in a, in a book. Uh, and he, he told her, Oh my God, I just read this, you know? So there was another one of these, these, these precognitive dreams about a significant event happening with her therapist the next day. Um, and, and this is, you're going to love this. I mean, because it fits so well with your kind of somatic presentiments. Um, uh, 
she also at one point in their therapy uh, acted out some very strange physical symptoms um, and fantasies connected to her symptoms, um, uh, such as, for, for example, a fantasy of an elephant coming out of her vagina, okay? Well, Jung was like blown away by this because he had just been reading in a, a book, uh, I'm forgetting the title of the book, but it's a classic book about Kundalini yoga that had been published shortly before this. Well, that is an image from this book. And he, he told her, oh my God, this is, you know, this is, uh, you know, you're, you're describing uh, all this Kundalini symbolism. And for him, for Jung, this was proof of the collective unconscious, right? Um, whereas I would say, well, no, this is a time loop. And, and she's having a precognitive dream, which is being confirmed by her, or not, in this case, a precognitive symptom and fantasy that's being confirmed and explained by this doctor. And I'll add another detail here. She was in love with Jung, okay? In the same way that patients are always often in love with their doctors. I mean, we call, they call it the transference in, in, in psycho, psychoanalysis. Um, and Jung felt similar physical desire for this patient. And it's, it, there's no evidence that he had an affair with her, but, but nevertheless, there was, there was an erotic frisson there. So these are all the kinds of, these are the kinds of situations uh, and a, a, a erotic unacted upon connection, um, rewarding experiences in, in therapy with a very, with a beloved and admired, you know, uh, therapist. These are all kinds of situations that are going to catalyze precognitive experiences. Um, and, and that's exactly what, what, uh, happened with, with Maggie Quarles. It's, it's um, fun. It's fun to think about these things from, uh, different perspectives. Uh, yeah, it's worth mentioning that Jung did have, uh, an affair at least with one of his patients, uh, named, uh, Tony Wolf, mm -hmm. who became his, uh, his, student who then became his analyst uh, right. and lived in worked in his house with Emma, his wife, knowing it about it and that it was OK. And it's not that doesn't get much play among unions, uh, as you mentioned. Was, this is before the invention of boundaries. <laughs> yeah, have boundaries. All these situations back <laughs> back in the day as a soap opera. It, <laughs> Yeah, it's that's right. It, it, it was it was a boundaryless time. They can do <laughs> stuff like that. Um, I, I want to. I, I have a different perspective on the elephant story. Um, mm -hmm. That uh, because they were so bonded, because they had such a connection with each other, uh, I would suggest to you that one possible different explanation is that she picked up that he was reading about an elephant and that she absorbed that into her dream. And so she reflected back something that he was already doing as a way of making their connection stronger. Yeah, I, I so this is, this is one place where I sort of get in, in little fights with other parapsychologists and stuff, because I'm not a believer in telepathy. And um, I, I think that, that these situations that look like telepathy, which is what you're describing, uh, are, are misrecognized precognition because or at least you can't rule that out because the, the, that moment of connection where he shares, you know, this story, um, uh, is a moment of confirmation in her future, um, that could have refluxed into a dream or a symptom or whatever. Um, so given the fact that we know that that operates, that's a, that's a kind of a known mechanism, I believe. I mean, I, I would assert that. I mean, precognition is so well, I think, established um, that I, I, I'm always going to question that sort of direct mind-to-mind -mind, uh, link. But I know that I'm, a, I'm an outlier in arguing that because I think uh, most people would sort of uh, want to see it. Um, the way you described, but that's, you know, that's my rejoinder that that's, you know, that, that exciting moment of confirmation in her future is what, you know, is refluxing into the past in the form of a symptom, fantasy, dream, whatever. Well, I, I really respect and appreciate your taking this stand. Um, I think what happened with my father in the choking was a somatic 
telepathy. It was the the it was the original meaning of telepathy, not cognitive, but right. physical. Physical, yeah. Feeling at a distance was what telepathy mm -hmm. usually first meant. Uh, it it's it's always a, a problem when you argue about which type of pre, which type of psi are we talking about because mm -hmm. they can be explained in from whatever perspective you want right. the important thing is weird stuff happens man so we, <laughs> yeah, that's right. me, that, that's the me, bottom line yeah <laughs> that, that's what we, that's what we all got to reunite with so, against the, the the fundamentalist materialists saying it doesn't let's just collect the data i mean right. yeah a bunch of anecdotes is data it's not just yeah. one story and you've got a lot of stories and I, we can go over a bunch of different ways of explaining them but this stuff happens ladies and gentlemen mm -hmm. and i've got my own ideas about it i call it the psychosphere our mental atmosphere and we're connected through it and there's plenty of room for precognition in it but you're expanding my ability to think about precognition and i very much appreciate your book and being able to talk with you about it because it's a lot simpler to use precognition with a lot of synchronicity events it's just a lot easier uh, and that's i look for a, the simple ways of doing it and there's a lot that could be simply explained rather than going through a lot of other stuff and a lot of that other stuff I want to give you the I want to give you the floor on this one. Why don't you tell us about synchronicity as a placeholder? Yeah. Okay. Um, so when when Jung, I mean, and this is to Jung's credit. I mean, he was really he was really open minded about about a lot of paranormal phenomena um, that you know his erstwhile mentor freud was a lot more cautious about actually freud believed in a lot of paranormal phenomena too but just was really afraid of talking about it publicly because he didn't want to you know damage the reputation of you know psychoanalysis in, in its early years yeah. um and as he got older he got felt more freer to talk about about it but um but jung you know really felt this was important and central okay and that's very much to his credit um and in the 40s you know this like the event with the scarab and maggie's therapy i think that's this was going through the 20s essentially uh but he was you know he was collecting this kind of evidence from a lot of his patients and his own self i mean he was he was he'd been interested in this stuff uh from uh from a young age uh and he he knew it was important but he didn't have a theory for it he didn't have a way of of fitting it into some sort of framework. Now, in the 1930s, the framework of extrasensory perception came along uh, with the Rhines, of course, in um, Duke University. And that opened a way to, to thinking about this stuff, but it wasn't, it didn't seem adequate to him. Um, and his, but his work, uh, you know, the quantum physics was kind of coming into its own at this point and he felt that you know he saw a connection there and he thought okay this is this is some way to think about about uh meaningful coincidence um that it relates somehow to the quantum world uh and statistics and so on and and you know so finally and this is coming out of his his work with um wolfgang pauli you know his patient uh, who was a famous quantum physicist, um, uh, he develops this, you know, comes up with a theory, all right? Well, it wasn't really a theory, uh, but it was a concept of, of synchronicity. Now, I call it a placeholder because there still wasn't enough of a theory there to really explain how meaningful events interact with the physical world. Okay, that that he still couldn't do that uh, because physics had yet to to develop and quantum physics was still kind of a, a, in its adolescence at that point. Um, what we now have, however, uh, is the concept of retro causation, and that is to say, it's now increasingly recognized by more and more physics for physicists. Sorry that on quantum scales on the smallest scales in nature effects can come before causes all right you can have kind of 
uh, backwards causation. And that, I believe, is the principle that ultimately explains how we can have something like precognition. Um, and uh, so what I call, I call synchronicity a kind of placeholder concept because it was kind of a waiting. Let me, let me, let me ask yeah. you about the retro causation, because I was a big believer in teleological causation yeah. mm -hmm. uh, that we're drawn to a future. Sure. It's mm -hmm. not the past that makes it happen, but that this teleological thing that we're drawn to something right. that we want to be, need to be somehow, however, the, however that happens. How is teleological causation related to retro causation? Yeah, well, that's, they're, they're, they're the same thing, essentially. You know, back in the Enlightenment, okay, teleology had always been one of the, one of forms of causation that, that people assumed to operate in the world. Uh, but back in the Enlightenment, it got booted out because people couldn't imagine at that point that there was any kind of backwards causation or, or being pulled towards some, you know, outcome in the future that wasn't part of God's plan. Okay. That wasn't part of God's divine intention. All right. And it was no fair bringing God into your, you know, naturalistic explanations of the physical world. So scientists since the Enlightenment have just been trained to reject out of hand any teleological explanation for any physical system, okay? And it worked fine up to, for a while, but early in the last, about a century ago, physicists who we now call quantum physicists, you know, discovered that, that uh, explaining things only in a linear way doesn't fully explain things. There's that level that, 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 at the smallest scales, things are random and you, or they seem random. They seem uncaused. Okay. Well, fast forward a few decades, people are starting to realize that, oh, wait a minute, that what we used to call randomness and uncertainty, that may be retro causation. That may be, these, these may be effects of a system or of a particle on it from its future. Okay. And that's, this is a, a, a an active area of study right now. Um, uh, in fact, I believe like right now, as we're speaking, there's a, there's a big workshop going on in Bonn, Germany with some of the big, big physicists talking about retro causation. Um, the trouble with uh, a lot of quantum mechanics ideas to me is, uh, and it's still to a lot of people, is that these micro events to generalize to where they're macro events that like we're not particles. Yeah. And, right. and they're, make, they're, they're making more and more uh, larger um, uh, elements being able to be entangled, meaning like mm -hmm. the, you, a, a spooky action at a distance, you hit one and the other one will simultaneously uh, respond to it. But still, these are pretty small things compared to uh, human beings. So how do yeah. you bridge the gap, I think? And that's a big question is when, when does quantum mechanics enter into Newtonian apparently mechanics? Quantum biology is your answer. Uh, this is this is a, 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 another big area of study right now. Is how quantum effects scale up. You know, scaling up is the term. You know, for making them bigger uh, in biological systems. And over the past uh, decade and a half, uh, this is a huge growth area in in biological science. Is showing the the ways um, these spooky quantum effects, entanglement, tunneling, all these, these things you'll read about in quantum physics uh, articles, these play an important role in life, in living systems. And one of the biggest, you know, what, the gold rush, there's a gold rush to, to find how the brain is a quantum computer, you know, uh, and there are good candidates for quantum computing structures in the brain, you know, things like microtubules. Um, some of your listeners, I'm sure have heard of uh, Stuart Hameroff, um, who is looking for the roots of consciousness in these kind of quantum, uh, quantum computing structures that are, that are uh, plentiful in neurons. Um, well, I think I'm not so interested in consciousness because I, I think precognition is an unconscious phenomenon. So it doesn't even have to do with consciousness. Um, but I think that that, that search for for consciousness in quantum biology is actually going to yield the evidence for how these, the, how retro causation scales up in a biological system okay, and, a, and a nervous system. And that's cool. And you do, you do go into that in your new book, uh, 
uh, Stuart Hameroff uh, has a section where you warn the reader you don't have to read this, but uh, <laughs> it's really what I think. So get into it for me, will you please? Because right. this is really where it is. Right. Uh, and there's a lot of arguments about all this stuff. Uh, fractals are involved somewhere in there in chaos and complexity. Just how it all happens is, uh, is what I like, is there's a lot of turmoil to try to figure it out because what needs to be said is weird stuff happens. Yeah. And we better pay attention to it because it has something to do with us and maybe the future mm -hmm. of humanity. Well, yeah. we, we're talking about the synchronicity as a placeholder, and I very much respect your respect for Jung to be able to take the kind of uh, more mystical things that meaningful coincidences suggest and be able to put a name on something that who knows what it was, a yeah. causal connecting principle, what a right. causal, but it looks like archetypes caused it the way you describe it, Jung, but no, they're not causal, they're constellated. I mean, yeah. it was a kind of a, a sticky language, which yeah. Jungians still use. And still believe in as if they're telling something real but what you've done is make it more real and for you retro causation um, using uh, quantum mechanics quantum physics as a way of understanding it becomes a, a place you are standing to be able to explain a lot of these weird things and i think that that is really important now as we come as we come to the end of this i think you have a uh, you have some three step suggestions uh steps about how our listeners can increase their precognitive ability. Uh, take mm -hmm. us through that, please, Eric. Yeah. Um, so, so the you know, despite what we were we've been talking about, is is all these you know all these behavioral ways in which you know precognition factors into our lives, um, uh, and of course, just being intuitive, you know, just, just opening yourself to being intuitive, you know, and and shutting off your rational brain. That's you know, that's. I think you would agree that that's, that's really, I important. think that's what more clearly I did when I was crying. Yeah. When I was yeah. looking for my dog, I, my rational brain was gone. Right. So right. I was, I was running on something else. And yeah. That yeah. Ma you made that a lot clearer in our discussion. Right. Well, the, besides all that, I think the easiest way I think to, for people to prove to themselves, that's what I'm really trying to do is, is, you know, I'm not going to, convince, you know, mainstream scientists of the reality of precognition by writing a yet another book on the subject. I mean, there's a million books on the subject, but what I would like to do is get enough people to experience it in their own lives, that it changes the conversation that way. And I think that's how people are going to kind and of- And I have exactly the same perspective on meaningful right. coincidence generally, which includes precognitive uh, uh, events. It, right. It, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him, because mm -hmm. you've got to be able to experience this yes. stuff yourself, which is why I am encouraging people through the Coincidence Project to tell each other coincidence stories yeah. to establish that weird stuff happens, not just to you, but to other people. And as you were trying to make so very clear, and I want to emphasize with Jung and his, his scarab patient, Maggie, that we can't tell these stories just from our own perspective. We right. have to also look at the perspective of the other person involved. It's a bipersonal field, mm -hmm. and we have to see that we are part of something greater in which that field takes place. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, yeah, right, then the internet has been wonderful for creating this opportunity for citizen science. I mean, I think it sounds like citizen science is exactly what you're doing as well yeah. uh, with coincidence. Um, but uh, but in, in any event, the, you know, you asked about the three-step process for dreams. dreams. Dreams are the easiest way. Like, you know, even if you're not necessarily, don't consider yourself an intuitive person or whatever, I think people are gonna get the quickest and most vivid evidence of precognition in their own lives via their dreams, generally. Excuse um, me to do a little quote here, but dreams are the royal road to precognition. Right. Freud exactly. said the royal road to the unconscious, and here it's the royal road to a big yes. aspect of precognition. So good. Absolutely. So, you know, probably a lot of your listeners already keep a dream journal. Um, that's the number one. That's step number one. You know, be a be a dream recorder, record all your dreams. And that means really record all your dreams, even dreams that seem, oh, that wasn't important 
or that wasn't significant, or I just remember a fragment or something like that. Write it all down. Um, there is a myth. One of the myths I bust in my new book is that there's the idea that a precognitive dream is going to feel numinous or something. It's going to feel special. And that, no, it, I, I believe dream precognition is a constant feature of our dreams. And, and you're just as liable to find that a, just a mundane, boring, stupid seeming dream was precognitive as some big, big, significant seeming dream. So no, step number one, write it all down. Uh, the second step um, is, uh, is also important for uh, netting lots of examples of precognition. And that is when you write it down, free associate on all the things you're writing down. That, does not, that doesn't mean anything esoteric or difficult. It just means uh, what's the first thing this reminds me of? You know, it's like the, the, you know, such and such a per character in my dream was wearing a certain kind of shirt and it looked like, you know, had this certain color and texture, you know, just those details that you notice in a dream are significant. They're significant terms in the dream rebus. Uh, and, so, and Jung used the term active imagination for just what you're describing. Well, Jung's active imagination is something more than that. I mean, he's, he's talking about actually sort of entering into a trance state and kind of interacting with the dream world. Um, and, uh, and that's, that sort of advanced players stuff. I talk about it a little bit in, in, in the latter chapters of my book. Um, but for beginning dreamers, you know, who don't have experience with that stuff, it's enough to just record your night dreams in the morning. I'm not, you know, like that's uh, let's not get okay, into advanced <laughs> stuff. It's advanced. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's advanced. But let's advance a little bit. I mean, if you're advanced, what happens? You run into more precognition when you do. Oh that? yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, there's all, there's all kinds of places you can go with this. Um, but let me give you the third step. Though. Okay. I mean, there's a, we're, we're only on step two, yeah. uh, step three, and this is the thing no one thinks to do. All right. And this is, and the, but this is what's distinguishes precognitive dream work from any other kind of dream work. And that's set aside your dream records after you've written them down in the morning. Okay. Set aside your journal and don't even think about it, you know, but that night at the end of the day, open up your dream journal reread your dream from that morning or your dreams from that morning and go back and reread the dreams from the previous couple of days as well. Okay. And just reflect, reflect on any seeming connections between those dreams and those free associations that you also wrote down and the things that have occurred, happened in your life or your experiences or your thoughts and preoccupations during the day and see if you can identify connections because that's that's where you're going to find precognition in your dreams and so this is not just kind of waiting for some uh you know incredible premonition of a disaster story in the news like that the things that kind of stand out in the landscape of of precognitive dreaming in the literature you're you're gonna when you do this you're gonna discover that oh i'm having you know i'm having these weird precognitive dreams about kind of relatively mundane things in my daily life, you know, like some really interesting news story or some weird situation at work or something like that. And, uh, and then people are going to start, and then you're going to start noticing, oh, okay, so this is how precognition works. You'll get a sense of how your brain kind of transforms these experiences symbolically, and you'll build up evidence. Oh, wow. Okay. So I, this was a precognitive dream and that was a precognitive dream. And you'll start seeing it happening. Now, not, you're not going to discover this with every dream, but people who do this uh, tend to find, and this is true in my own case, uh, that a, they'll be able to identify a precognitive target or whatever for about a quarter of the dreams that they write down. Uh, I'm not guaranteeing that. I'm not, not, you know, there's no money back guarantee on my book, but, but I've, I've had a lot of testimonials that the first night they, you know, they started, they tried this uh, they wound up precognizing like something in my book that they read the next day, you know, things like that. And that's, that gets back to the fractal stuff. The, the you know, the, the precognitive dream, dreaming mind loves stuff having to do with precognition <laughs> and it'll, and it'll, you know, reach for that stuff in its future and present it in a dream at night. And when you start having these experiences, it's, 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 you know, it awakens you to what I call the long self. That is to say that, that we are not just who we are at the present moment, but we are stretched out in time into the past and future. And it's, 
we're our our future is communicating to us now just the same way our past is in memory um and it's a you know it's an expanded sense of who you are um but yeah so those are the three steps record all your dreams free associate and go back to your dream records every night well that's the key one the last one is yeah. go back to the dream records and your associations to the yeah. dream records mm-hmm. and then take what you got that night uh when you put them at night when you put when you're connecting or when you're reading about what you've written down and then you end up seeing something that might have happened during that day that was uh suggested by not only the dream content but uh, also the associations to the dream content all right right Right. exactly it's often the the associations the the brain speaks an associative language uh and it's often those associations that are the connection to the event the next Ah. day It's it's a it's a relatively uh I would say a, a, a very low percentage of dreams that are somehow video quality, you know, literal representations of something that's going to happen the next day or the next few days. Uh, they're going to be symbolic um, to a significant extent. And it's get it. So the, the free association part is getting at that symbolism. <laughs> that's a, such a key thing. Now you write about that in both books, I think, don't yeah. you? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, again, uh, uh, the, the Eric's book, uh, this more recent one, uh, precognitive dreamworks and the long self, which we have just talked about, uh, can tell you something more about these, what we just talked about here. But I think the key thing, uh, that I take away and I hope others take away from this is that this, that the, the more convincing evidence for precognition is in the association to the dream or dreams uh, and what just happened in that day. And that's, uh, that's, that's new to me, uh, clearly, more clearly new to me and maybe to others. So uh, when, I, when, I, when I write this, um, I write about this for, our, for publication or posting and on my uh, YouTube channel. Uh, I'm going to emphasize this part of it because I think it's it's fundamental to what you're trying to be able to help people do. It's why I emphasize Freud so much because because this was Sigmund Freud's kind of great contribution to understanding dreams. I mean, I think he was wrong about about w- the function of dreams and why they disguise things symbolically. I mean, he had his own ideas that, you know, dreams were the disguised fulfillment of repressed wishes, okay? I think that's not the case. I mean, I think the dreams are very often uh, pre-presentations of future thoughts that we're gonna have. And it's not that that they don't disguise them, uh, these thoughts because they're, you know, forbidden, wishes and desires, uh, like the stereotypical Freudian stuff, like, you know, wanting to sleep with your mother and that kind of thing there it's disguised precisely for these reasons we talked about earlier in the context of, of your lost dog, that, that they're there. These are, these dreams are billiard balls shot from her future self to your dreaming mind. Okay. And they're, they're getting the, and, and it can't be a direct representation of this future event because you would act, you know, to, prevent that event there would be a grandfather paradox if it did that so it's speaking to us obliquely okay and that's why these these associative connections are so are are so key uh i think that that the dream symbolism is a symptom of information refluxing back in time in a universe where there are freely willed beings who can act upon that information um beautiful eric beautiful very well said uh and I, I'm very glad that we had a chance to talk about this stuff um, because you're, you're making it clearer to me and I hope to the people who are watching and listening uh, to us talk about this. Uh, as we come to the end of this, um, I, I, I like to ask people to tell us something more personal about Eric Wargo, uh, something about you more as like a regular guy uh, rather than this uh, this uh, researcher, uh, this psychonaut into uh, the future 
is now. <laughs> the future is now. <laughs> the future is now. I never thought of it that way. The future is now. That's what you're that's what you're being able to tell us. So tell us something about Eric Wargo, please. Yeah, well, I'm uh, Eric Wargo's a dad. I've got two little kids, two little girls, and I I I spend a lot of time um, trying to be a good dad to my little girls and not and not talk about psychic phenomena with them but but i'm constantly in awe of how psychic little kids are <laughs> um uh it's 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 kind of uh, mind-blowing to 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 see little children uh and have that you know listen to what they're listen to what they're saying and and sometimes you know you know they will describe something that's about to happen and if you pay attention it's just it's an amazing it's an amazing thing and you really see how as we grow up, this, this whole side of ourselves is socialized out of us. You know, we're not, you know, and most, most people are not rewarded for, you know, uttering some prophetic <laughs> uh, statement about what's about to happen. Um, uh, this is, you know, regarded as crazy or just, you don't do that, you know, and, <laughs> and um, I'm trying not to do that without necessarily encouraging, you know, uh, my kids being total, total psychic misfits. Uh, so trying to walk that line. <laughs> well, uh, thank you very much. Thank you very much for being with, with me today, Eric. Uh, quite very enlightening. And uh, maybe we'll get together with that uh, fractal lady and, uh, and talk about fractals and precognition and see where that goes. That, 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 that's going to that's gonna be a fun thing if we do it. So Sure, thank that'd be fun. Thank you very much, Eric. Uh, it was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Bernie. This was a lot of fun. This is our mental like a hologram of cosmic consciousness.